It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family through their Facebook page, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim, here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? Oh, couldn't be better. How are you, Tim? I'm doing pretty well. And this interview we had, Lance, in this episode is really a great a great conversation. We, uh, we speak to Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove, who are really cut from the same cloth as us. They do the Fall Line podcast, and they started their podcast on one case. It was the disappearance of Danette and Jeanette Millbrook out of Georgia, Augusta, Georgia, in 1990. And then Lance, just like us, their podcast led to a TV series done by Oxygen and produced by Texas Crew. And so you can check out that show, The Disappearance of the Millbrook Twins, on Oxygen. An easy way to watch it is to download the Oxygen app. That's what I did, and it's so convenient, and it's really powerful. And I think I texted that to you after you wrote to me that this is a really great uh, documentary. It's a uh, 90-minute documentary, and uh, and I wrote back that it was powerful, and it, it really is. Is there's They leave no stone unturned. They talk to family members like Danette and Jeanette's sister, Shantae, and the two investigators, Paige Reynolds, who's awesome. You'll, you'll start quoting some of his lines as you're getting towards the end of the episode. You realize uh, just how quotable and how badass this guy is. Also badass is Laura Coates. They're the two main investigators, and they actually draw evidence from uh, the Fall Line podcast. They reference it a lot, and they draw evidence from that, including a letter which they bring to law enforcement. And I don't want to give any spoilers, but it's really a significant moment in uh, the true crime genre. Yeah, it's a really great show and a great podcast, so check both out, and uh, please share this episode We and, and share the fall line, because uh, I think it's important to get this story of Danette and uh, Jeanette Millbrook out there as far as possible. 
And one thing that I really liked about the fall line is that they actively seek out cases that are just completely out of the public's attention for a number of reasons. And you'll 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 see this uh, especially with um, the Millbrook twins. Okay, and before we play this interview with the ladies of the fall line, we want to tell you about some new live shows that we're doing. The show in Brooklyn that we did with True Crime Obsessed went so well that we've added a couple to the slate here. Check it out, truecrimeobsessed.com. And we're going to be at the Royale in Boston in March, March 20th, 2020 at 8 p.m. in Boston. And then we're going to be in Philadelphia the next night. The next night in Philly, March 21st at Underground Arts. And that show is at 8 p.m. And we will also be joined by our buddy Maggie Freeling. And we're going to try to recreate the magic two more times. Okay, so check that out. There are links to buy tickets in the show notes. So thank you very much, and uh, we hope you enjoy this interview and this episode, and please watch the Millbrook Twins, the disappearance of the Millbrook Twins Oxygen documentary, and subscribe to the Fall Line podcast. Welcome to Missing Maura Murray. We are being joined by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove of the Fall Line Podcast. How are you two ladies tonight? We're great. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel I feel like uh the the past few weeks with the guests that we've had on, it's like Christmas has come early. Uh, you two are my newest idols. You're you're up there uh with the work that you've done on your show and um really truly humbled to be speaking with you. So thank you. Whoa, thank you so much. That is so nice um, and incredibly intimidating, but really nice. <laughs> That's an interview tactic. That's an interview technique. Yeah. Set you up, soften you up. Yeah, it, it's a <laughs> good chance he's being completely disingenuous. He tells me stuff like that uh, most mornings just to uh, break some bad news usually. Yeah, I have, a, I, have a, I have an automatic text message that I said that just goes to Tim at like 7.30 a.m. Tim, I think you're the greatest. It's an honor (laughs) to be on the other side of the microphone with you. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. So your show, The Fall Line, I I believe it it began uh, covering the disappearance of the Millbrook twins in Augusta, Georgia. Is that correct? Yes, it did. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you recently participated in a, a, a TV series, a, a special from uh, our good friends at Oxygen, produced by our good friends at Texas Crew Productions. Yes, I feel like we're family now. Ah, seriously, we're like we're like cousins. We're like uh, kindred <laughs> second cousins. <laughs> yeah, kindred spirit cousins. I feel like uh, with our paths with um, the podcast covering one case and then. Um, kind of eventually kind of going to other cases, but also that, that one case launches a documentary for Oxygen done by Texas Crew. It's pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. I, I love the fact that you guys do take on uh, one case and you dig uh, deep into it. What's your, what's your process like and when did you decide to do it that way? And, and how did you sort of break down who does what and, and, and how far to go? Ooh, that's a multi-layered question. That's what I do, I told you, it's a tactic. Yeah, it's it's these are these are excellent tactics. Um, Brooks, our interviewer, I hope you're. Are you taking note of these tactics? Yes. Okay, excellent. Yeah. So um, we we largely do one case at a time. Sometimes we do seasons where we do several cases, like cases that we really want to cover, but there's just not enough there to have a full plot arc for the season. Mm-hmm. Um, but. In general, like our basic criteria for picking cases is we look for cases where there's little to no information available because our skill set is building that information. So we feel like we can actually add something to the conversation if we can build information on a case. And then if people have access to it, then they start talking about it. And if they start talking about it, there's new interest. And you guys know how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. And you you sort of have to deal with a little bit of the – uh, I guess the collateral damage that comes with uh, new information. So there's a process of vetting information and sifting through what might be false leads or, uh, you know, the proverbial red herring. Um, was that something that w- when you started this, you encountered a lot that you were bogged down a little bit by 
uh, people contacting you with these leads? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We have had a very different experience, I think, than you guys. Because I think you probably, how many leads have you gotten or tips? Thousands? Um, yeah. No, I, w- I, I would say about. like, yeah, I wouldn't say legitimate um, leads. You know, I I, th- I think I would say yeah. we've gotten thousand theories, um, but mm-hmm. I think most of those yeah. people aren't, d- don't think they're submitting actual information. They might think what they're saying is correct, but I don't think they would say, bring in, bring this to the police. So on our, our side, it's the exact opposite. There's nothing. Yeah. So we don't hear a thing, really. Really? Um, Why is we, that? Yeah, because the cases are completely obscure and no one's ever heard of them. Right. So when we start actually making the podcast, we will get the occasional call mm-hmm. or lead. But these cases are usually cases that will have happened in a town, maybe even on the same street where someone's living that's a listener and they've never heard of it before. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. What, so yeah, it's like we're cousins from uh, like a different <laughs> continent or something like that. Because <laughs> I feel like we only covered the Mara Murray case because there was so much um, activity on it that that kind of launched our our uh, interest in it. So I'm just sorry, just trying to hone in um, what kind of cousins we're at, we're at here. Yeah. If you were to do yes, like we're, a... we are s- separated by the Mason Dixon line. I love it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if we were to do like a um a true crime uh like DNA uh like twenty three and me type test, we would look yeah. at our results and be like, Oh, the fall line. Oh, all the way over there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, but I think it comes from the same fascinations. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yep, sure. It's yeah, I think I think we're both operating from this need that if you just look hard enough, you can find the right things that can help resolve an open case for a family or for an unidentified person, you know? Yes. So I think it, it, we're all coming from that angle. It's just that what we're good at is uh, obscurity. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Okay. So um, I want to talk real quick about, before we move into the, the story of the, the Millbrook twins uh, and their disappearance, um, I, I wrote, I want to talk about your backgrounds and, and wh- where you've come from. And I wrote down here, uh, professor, no investigation. That's what I wrote down here for you, Laura. Um, that, because that's what you, uh, you said that, that, uh, the police had, uh, had done. And I, I think it sounds like you're right, but, um, that, that was just like the clip they used to introduce you on the show, the disappearance of the Millbrook twins. And so, Brooke, and, and you're a, a licensed counselor, it's it, uh, it, it stated for you. So tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and where you came from and how do you know each other and everything. Yeah, so um, I am a therapist. I had been practicing um, in Atlanta where we live. Laura and I met long before we ever had our careers. We were in college, um, the end of our teenage years. So we've known each other a long time, um, and we were doing our careers and having kids and ended up living in the same town in Atlanta. Um, and Laura is a professor. Um, I had recently had a child when she started talking about her interest in starting the podcast and because she needed someone who would be able to communicate with families, she knew that these families had been through a lot, and she was concerned about coming out of the blue to contact them and see, you know, if in in the particular case of the Millbrook twins, this was the first case. We didn't realize it was going to go on, and there would be additional families. So she was just concerned about contacting the twins' family. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to do anything that was going to be upsetting for them. Um, so she asked me if I wanted to join her, and I was so happy to do so. Very cool. And Laura, what are you a professor of? Oh, you know. Um, Life. <laughs> so uh, so my, my background, my degrees are in creative writing. Um, and I was really focused on fiction for many years, but I've started teaching a lot more creative nonfiction, and I actually teach podcasting courses now too. Nice. So that's kind of wild. I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm sure uh, teaching those podcast courses, do you incorporate uh, how the investigative process on a citizen level works? Yes. Well, I don't let them investigate anything dangerous. 
You don't you don't send them out to to uh, <laughs> knock on some doors no. and tip over some uh, garbage like, cans in the alleys. <laughs> because I feel like you know, although they're technically adults, they just have no frontal cortex. Is that the term I'm looking for? There's just, it's just not there. Uh, you don't have to talk about Lance like that. Hey, <laughs> I'm not on mute here. So they dig into stuff like family mysteries or uh, I had a bunch of students look into the Atlanta Bleeding House this year, which is a really interesting little mystery from Atlanta from the 80s of a house that just started bleeding from its walls. I love this. It's true. Newspapers.com. Go check it out. Yeah, Yeah. it's awesome. It's crazy. But, you know, so that's what I I, I sort of brought. I began podcasting because I was really interested in learning to podcast to teach and I got angry about the Milbrook case at the same time. And those things just kind of converged. Mm-hmm. And it all kind of went from there. Well, gee, I, I can't imagine what would upset you about the Milbrook twins case. Can you explain? I know. It's so cut and dry. Yeah. Yeah. So I um, was teaching a class. And OK, so the cool thing about my university is they kind of let me do what I want. Um, I say that with trepidation in case somebody's listening and stops me. Shout out, um, shout out your university. Georgia State University. Boom. Go Huskies. Um, so I... <laughs> the, the Panthers. Oh, sorry. <laughs> similar. Yeah. They, they're, <laughs> cousin, similar. Cousins, yes. They're cousins, yeah. <laughs> um, I was teaching a class that I designed, like, freshman compositions really boring. So I like to design fun stuff to make it more interesting. And I did a whole course on unresolved mysteries. And actually, we covered Mara on that, oh, in very that cool. class. Nice. But I had them, I wanted them to learn about how like victim coverage is really um, unbalanced and how hard it is to find out information on cases that don't miss that missing white woman syndrome template. So I actually heard of the Millbrook twins on Robin Warder's podcast, The Trail Went Cold. Uh, I'm sure you guys are familiar with him. Yes. Shout out Robin. Great guy. Yeah, he had uh, had a listener connect him to Shantae, and he did a interview with her. And so I was like in Augusta, you know, because we're in Atlanta, which is two hours away. So I went and tried to find out information on the case, and there were three articles, and they were all from 2013, and two of them were the same article, just printed in different papers. And that was when the case was reopened. And so, like, you know, we have microfiche and we have archives in the university I I can get into. And there was just nothing. So I had my students look and they couldn't find anything. And they were, you know, doing everything they possibly could. And then I said, why do you think it's like this? And we really began to discuss um, the effects of the media's disinterest and missing children of color, missing women of color, really, you know, people that don't fit that basic mold. And from that point on, I kept looking into the case and just got angrier and angrier and wanted to see if I could increase public knowledge of the case by just building up that base with more information. And that's how we started. Good for you. Good for you. And the, I, I, I love that you focus on these, uh, these victims I love that you focus on um, unknown cases. Uh, you know, Tim and I fell into the Maura Murray case because we were really fascinated with um, the the community that was so passionate about figuring out what happened to her. And then we discovered what missing white girl syndrome was. And I love that there's a group of people like yourself that look into these cases. And I love that you keep saying that you got angrier and angrier and, uh, and and in the words of uh, Zach De La Roca, ang- your anger is a gift. You know, it's it's how you use it. So I, I love how you have made that into your motivation to bring some closure here. Yeah, and I I love how you talked about um, initially developing an interest because of the community. We are experiencing the same thing, just in the opposite order. People truly did not know these children were missing. Even people who lived in Augusta and had lived there their whole lives didn't know there were a set of missing twins. Um, 
now that the show has come out, word sort of got around town. I feel like a lot of locals have watched it. And there is this community that is like coming out of the woodwork, trying to contact the family and let them know like, oh my gosh, we had no idea. What can we do? Let's all get together and do something to help. It is like so beautiful because the family has been waiting for anyone to pay attention, you know, since 1990. They've been trying to speak about it and trying to get people to pay attention and they just haven't had a microphone yet until now and it's just so wonderful to see yeah yeah and it's crazy that that it's it's um that, that you can say that that you can say the people even in augusta in the immediate area don't know about this and the show came out and now people are coming out and and forming a community to help figure this out but I mean, we've 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 saw we've seen the uh, the billboard that's been up. It's been thirty years, and and when you show the route that the girls walked, where they walked to the store and their father's house, and I mean the 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 Godfather's house, it's aside from them coming from their own house, like the that route is so small, like the it kind of it kind of puts into perspective. Even though we're talking about a city, this was a small community in the city, or was I getting the wrong impression of that? No, you're right. I mean, even though they walked a good little bit, it's still a fairly small area. Yeah. Yeah. And so they went missing on March 18th, 1990. And there's a little bit of a timeline that they go over um, in the program on Oxygen. And was that something that you had learned um, via your your podcast? So the timeline, the family always had the timeline. Yeah. It's just that the police report didn't have everything. Well, A, it didn't have everything that was that actually happened on the timeline. And B, some of the locations were incorrect. Mm-hmm. So if someone was to go and try and interview people um, and see what they'd seen, they would have been on the wrong street. Yeah. We worked with the family early on to really establish precisely what happened at various times and exactly where they went. So that we could figure out, like, okay, so if they were actually here, who in this area hasn't been spoken to? Right. And what was really interesting about it is that several of the people that we interviewed who had seen them on that final walk had never been interviewed by the police. They had never been contacted. Um, So they are not even... Even though the file was allegedly lost and we've never been able to see it, they were not in the file in the first place um, because no one had bothered to come by. Mm-hmm. That That's crazy. Okay, so can we go over the, the timeline here uh, up until the point that they went missing? So uh, Jeanette and Danette, they went with their with their mom to church in the morning? Yeah, so they went with their family that morning to church. Um, After church, the family came back to their apartment. They had just moved to that side of town. Um, The twins actually wanted to finish out the semester at the school they had attended on sort of the other side of town where they had just moved from. Um, They were going to need to get there, and the bus would not pick them up because they had moved. So um, they talked to their mom. Their mom said, call your godfather. I don't have the money for that. Maybe he can loan you some. He said that he would. Before they left to go to his house to get money for the bus, they left and went to church's chicken, got some lunch for the family, and came back home. When they got home, they told their mom that a white van had been following them. Um, It was kind of an offhand remark. They didn't seem too upset about it. Um, And so they left at that point and went to walk to their godfather's house. This was in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, Went by godfather's house. He gave them some money. He gave them a little bit of extra so they could get like a drink at the gas station or whatever. Um, They left their godfather's house, and on their way home, they walked by their cousin Juanita's house, and they went to knock on her door and ask her if she wanted to come with them. Juanita's mom said no because it was getting late. I think she didn't want her walking with them so late. 
Um, so they left Juanita's house and stopped by their older sister's house and asked their older sister if she would walk with them. She had just had a baby, and she was not up for it. So she said, no, I'm staying here. They said, okay. They left their sister's house, went by the gas station to pick up a drink and some chips, um, and they were leaving the gas station to walk home to their apartment, and they were just gone, um, never seen again. Yeah, this is a, the moment in the show where they talk about how the cashier looks looks away from them and then looks back up, and, and it seems like the second they left the store, that was when that was when whatever happened to them happened to them is that is yeah. is that your thoughts on it as well that that it happened yeah, like I right mean, there at the that's store that's what we think okay we they are very near the store is situated in such a way that it can be approached on both sides uh-huh. you know it's your average corner gas station where people could pull in from one side or the other but there's also an alley that runs behind the gas station where people would walk a kind of cut through not like a city alley, but like, I don't know how country you guys are, but like, you know, like more like a, a dirt path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, with grass on the yep. other side that runs behind. And so they could have gone in any of those three directions, um, but they definitely didn't get far after that point because she kind of glanced around and you think she would have seen them walking down the street. It's a busy street. There's nothing really blocking the way. There aren't trees. So she's she but she looked and she saw nothing. Okay. Okay. So then the the TV show with with this lead um from from the prisoner Ernest that that uh I mean I I know you initiated contact with Ernest in prison but um you were you aware of what he was going to say? No. So how we came upon Ernest was um I started looking into their dad quite early. On in the process, you know, as you would. The, the, the based twins' on, dad, John, right? Yeah, John Milbrook. Okay. I mean, based on what the family told us and just based on some other information. So we pretty quickly found out that he'd been arrested with several people. And I wanted to see how close they were. So we dug through a little bit, found out they'd all been pallbearers at a funeral together. And we ascertained that these guys he'd been arrested with, they'd committed two murders And then John had been involved after the fact in attempting to hide one of the bodies of the victims. And he's considerably older than them, so it was kind of interesting that he had this relationship with them in the first place. But we tracked down the guys who were still in prison. There were a few that had been out, and we wrote to them, just like you saw in the show, asking them some basic questions. We asked them if they knew who Joseph Patrick Washington was, who was um, a serial rapist and alleged serial killer. And Augusta, we asked them if they remember John Millbrook, and we asked them if they knew the twins. And we got that letter back, or Brooke got that letter. She's the one that wrote back in October, right, of 2017. Um, and we totally wanted to know what he had to say. I mean, we were dying to know. Yeah. But we felt like if we did that, we could damage the only possible lead that had occurred in this case in 30 years. And that would just be unconscionable. So even though we already had a chilly relationship with the sheriff's department at that point, um, Brooke sat down, got it arranged, got them copies of the letter, made sure everyone had the letter, contacted the DA, contacted the DA's investigator, um, and just really pushed, hoping that someone would look into this. We were told that they would, but no one ever did. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Now, the contents of the letter, in his response, he says that he has information on on uh, Jeanette and Danette's uh, whereabouts. Yeah. Like, or what happened to them. Yeah, so he, he actually said, um, what if I told you I know where you can find them? Um, so of course, when we got that letter, you know, it just blows your mind. 30 years later, someone seems to know where they are. And then for two years, it's just sat on. Yeah, that that's one of the more frustrating parts of the the 
when you see that moment in the in the uh, in the special on oxygen, that's an incredibly frustrating part. Uh, when you learn that it's, I mean, you literally have a letter from somebody who's uh, in prison as an accessory to murder, right? That's what he was in prison for, or was he in prison for murder? Ernest Vaughn's was in prison for murder, and so was Reggie Cummings. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so they were in prison for murder in that area, and they write the the response to you specifically saying that about the Millbrook twins, and no one does anything for two years. Well, it seems like they didn't want to turn over this, uh, you know, or open this big can of worms because uh, it, it sounds like it, it would have led down a path of... Uh, a lot, of, a lot of people like that, um, drugs, murders, um, but potentially a lot worse uh, stuff. And it, it almost seems like the uh, ship guy, um, wh- whatever ship. his name, yeah, wh- what an asshole. Um, but it almost seems like he, you know, th- they just didn't want to try because they knew it was too much. It was too big. Well, ship, so ship would have been gone around 93, um, so he was the original investigator and we, well, he's still an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, for another reason. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So he, I, we honestly think, I mean, a lot of people have been like, do you think that there was a massive conspiracy specifically involving, uh, the original investigator ship? We didn't name him on the show, but oxygen has. So now we can say it. We think, no, yeah. we think it was pure apathy. Uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, I, I was just going to yeah. say that yeah, I was no. actually going to I was going to interrupt you like I just did now in a very rude fashion. <laughs> I was going to say no, I don't think it's a conspiracy, and I think that that's what you that's what I was I I thought this is exactly what I thought you were going to say. It's not a conspiracy. It's just they didn't give a shit about two black girls. Yeah, and he he just he seemed to have not a lot of empathy in general, and didn't care yeah. about them and just closed you know closed the case out we have only ever seen the incident report so we have to go on what we're told by other people um we're told that basically he wrote down that other people had seen the twins but the family was told that actually it was because the twins had turned 17 that he was closing the case and i think everybody in true crime knows that you don't close a case because someone turned 17 no, you always yeah, close uh, cases what? when they turn 17. You just close them. Yeah, it's just, done. It's, it's just kind of, you know, when they were told that and then get, getting the call from Nick Mech a few years later, um, that was not the somber call, you know, that you would expect because, of course, Nick Mech doesn't have this information. They just have yeah. the information that the case has been closed out and the twins have Mark found. Yeah, see, this is this is what we're so, like, fired up about is that uh, that this this – this guy Jim Ship had he 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 initiated that call, right? Yes, he did. Well, yeah, what's happening there? And that that call was to the, the the National Center for Missing and Abused Children, right? That's 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 what we're talking about. Yeah, it's um, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And what did I say? Abused? Yes, exploited. Yeah, sorry. Yes, but yeah, it's, same. It, that's same thing. <laughs> same know? thing. So. Um, we actually spoke to someone there and he was able to see they had paper records back in the day. Um, and he was holding the piece of paper that they had gotten a call. Um, and then later on, Jim Ship actually admitted in the oxygen documentary that he was the one who made the call. And might yeah. I say that he, he didn't admit it in like, you know, a, an aggressive, uh, uh, you know, interview uh, scenario. It wasn't like he was in a room with a light bulb hanging from the ceiling and being interrogated. In in the show, it it gives the appearance that uh, the question was asked, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, I called them." The question was asked by by Laura Coates, who is one of the investigators in this, and 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 he doesn't even pause. She says he doesn't even pause. He says, "Yeah, I called them." Because I heard that, you know, there were sightings, so I just wanted to uh, close the case. Yes, he do- he truly doesn't seem to have any concept of um, his behavior having anything wrong with it. Well, I think he might because he didn't want to be put on camera, which is so weird to me. Then just don't even agree to do it, right? 
So we've actually spoken to him before. Um, Brooke, oh, here we go. Yeah, Breaking news. Brooke <laughs> spoke to him um, near, and it's we get into it on the podcast a little bit, but you know, as people without lawyers, um, we were careful. But Brooke spoke to him and asked him a lot of questions, and he was just very matter of fact, um, very unconcerned. He thinks they're runaways. He thinks they went to Texas. And that's when he actually said that line to her about if you find some dead twins, let me know, was on that call. Yeah. So that's just, yeah, he's just Jesus. very laissez-faire sort of approach. And I think that to me, at least, I think him not wanting to be shown perhaps has more to do with not wanting blowback and less to do with him feeling that his position's incorrect. Right. God. So that's like a political game. Well... Uh, Was it a racist thing or is it just like a a thing where it it was too big of a story? You know, so if if Ernest's story is true, um, then then there's a lot of people involved and uh, that's a lot of work for them. So I guess I guess my question is a laziness. Is it more laziness or, or racism? So because he gave us um, sort of limited access to his thoughts on the situation, we can't be sure. However, um, contextually, I did hear him talk about how many runaways there were in Augusta. Um, He continued to call the twins those runaways throughout the interview. Um, Mm -hmm. He said that they had they were known by the police department, although I let him know that they didn't have any records. We went, uh, Laura went to the department, the juvenile, what we did was the juvenile department of justice, um, Miss Louise signed some paperwork to allow me to ask them to do searches for the twins. They did a number of searches, different names, different spellings. They have no record. The school system also has no record of any major behavioral problems with the girls. So he continued to say that they were runaways, they were trouble, they they were, you know, bad kids. And this is not supported by any facts. And he wouldn't, I don't think he had any concept that there could have been a big, large case. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, like, he wouldn't, Ernie, or... Well, I suppose if he he thought that she she was hanging out in in the crowd with um with their dad there Millbrook. I don't know how much of that is true about his behavior and and drugs and and letting people use his apartment and and for for drug sales and things like that. If that stuff was true, I I could potentially see a cop being like what you know whatever. Well, interestingly, so the police never knew about any of this. Um uh, they They did not connect that there was a serial rapist, an alleged serial killer at the time. Um, Yeah. They also didn't ever interview the twins' father. They, I don't even think, knew anything about. No. That makes sense. I mean, you don't want to. No. They never interviewed John Milbrook? Absolutely not. You don't want to inconvenience him. He was. You're kidding me. Oh, my God. They literally (laughs) did not do these things. So it would never have occurred to him to even think of a lead. He literally decided these children have run away. I'm not going to look for them. I'm going to close their case. Yeah, no one was interviewed. So, I I mean, I think they definitely could have found out, you know, some troubling things about the twins' father if they had looked, but they didn't. So I honestly think he just said runaways augusta gets around 70 a month Mm -hmm. and moved on yeah well you know they had the masters to prepare for he was probably lining up security for right you know the the rich white folks coming in to watch golf right yep Mm -hmm. yeah and i think uh i (laughs) i think the the new sheriff richard uh roundtree he says it in the show when he when he says was there systematic rate uh racism in in 1990 of course you know, and and we might not look at it like, uh, you know, overt racism, but just the dismissiveness of like, well, they're just they just ran away, you know, the, they just went to their godfather's house to get some money to take the bus, and then they just decided to run away. Yeah, we'll move on because when it's institutional, a lot of times, um, people who aren't experiencing it, right, they like they don't see it. 
they don't know it. It's yeah, because it's don't... so embedded in society. It's in every single thing that we do. It's just yeah. that, you know, me walking around, I get to ignore it if I want to because I'm white. Yeah. Yeah, mm. 100%. All right, so this lead that came about via the um, the incarcerated um, prisoner there, Ernest Vaughn's, how how much validity do you think that has? Do you guys do you guys think that's true? We can't say. I mean, you know. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, this interview is over. Oh, I thought we had broken them down enough. <laughs> Have we mentioned how much we love you guys? We're supposed to be family. We know David Carabinus, okay? We, we have his number. Well, you text him right now. <laughs> um, I, I think that I feel like there's some elements there that, based on my research, feel to me like things that should definitely be pursued. Let me say it that way. Right. Okay. And... And but but they're are they not pursuing it officially? No, no, they they said they're no longer following those leads. So where does that leave the leads? Well, I mean, we have plenty of things that we've been working on throughout, um, and we've continued to work on them. So that's one thing, you know. And so we're just kind of doing what we do, which is talk to people and research, you know, but officially speaking from a legal perspective, there's nothing happening. Well, that's disappointing. There is, however, um, as we talked about before, there is a newly um, energized crowd of people in the city of Augusta who are very interested in these things being followed up on. They cannot conceive of why they wouldn't be. Um, So this is great news. People interested in things like searches. So, you know, there's, there's, and this is all on Facebook, you know, um, Shantae had a page for the twins called Missing Jeanette and Jeanette Millbrook. um, And it had maybe 100 or 200 followers, very small amount up until the show. And it's just exploded. Um, Especially with Shantae is their sister, right? Yeah. Shantae Sturgis. She's really the protagonist of our podcast and in a lot of ways of the story, because she's the person who has, you know, her mom had kids to raise and just a lot of trauma to deal with. So Shantae took over when she became a young adult, really pushing for her sister's case. So if you go and look at that Facebook page, you'll see a lot of people in Augusta who are saying, you know, where can we be? Where can we help? That's great. Have they organized um, searches that, you know, grid out areas and and people look at those areas, you know, maybe like, um, you know, 100 yards each or something. So I was actually speaking to a local friend of mine earlier, and I think there's some people who do this kind of thing who are interested in doing it right, you know, going to public property areas, gridding it out. So I think there's some talk about that, but nothing has happened as of yet. Okay. Well, that's okay. good. The The community is uh, is, is a great step. Um, you know, building a big community is a great, is a, is a big step towards, uh, combating the apathy, um, of the, of the official investigation, because you can raise money, you can make searches happen. That's, that's all possible. Absolutely. You can bring in cadaver dogs, GPR. Yes. yes, All possible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I want to go back real quick to um, like that area, and we were talking about how you can walk around and not see the racism. And uh, I was really fascinated when it was broken down. Kind of, it was sort of briefly. It was broken down when you were talking about how uh, Broad Street divides the town, and it it literally is like saying you know the other side of the tracks for the most part. Um, when you're talking about like the poverty versus the wealth that comes in with the masters versus any racial tension, how do you as as citizens breach that when you're investigating, when you go to talk to people? How do, how do, how do you do you do you ever play that? I don't want to say like play that card, but how, how do you how do you get into that community? I don't totally understand the question. <laughs> Yeah, it is a pretty convoluted question. Shots fired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, what I'm when you describe the area that that Augusta is, you have this one section that is is uh, has has poverty, and you have the other section that um, 
host the Masters, and there's a lot of wealth that comes into that area. And this case takes place somewhere in, in between as far as um, the like law enforcement and, and dealing with the, the people on the other side of Broad Street. And I just want to know your approach when you talk to families that are on that other side. Yeah, I are you are you sort of also maybe wondering how our race plays into it because that's definitely a factor. That yeah, I guess that was that's a, probably a better way to put it. Yeah, so so that was absolutely a consideration from the get-go because um primarily the people in positions of power in law enforcement in Augusta who have done things to this family that have hurt them are typically white people. Laura and I are both white. Um, so we absolutely needed to take that into account. I have been amazed at the family's um, acceptance of us as people who can come in and work with them. Um, they have been open to us coming in. They've been happy to work together with us. Um, I have felt so happy to work side by side with them to try to get their story out to a wider audience than has been heard before. Um, but it absolutely was a factor. And I can add a little bit more about that because you, you mentioned approach. So one thing I do want to say is that like, I think Augusta is like an easy picture of this because you have that one street and you have mansions and then you have twice the poverty level that you see in the rest of Georgia. But every city has marked disparity. It's everywhere. North, south, east, west, you know. And so mm -hmm. and maybe the communities that are experiencing the disparity change a little bit depending on the place, but it's there. So mm -hmm. our approach, um, because oftentimes the cases that we look at are cases of people who have experienced that disparity because they're the people that don't get coverage. We have a lot of things that we try to think about before we go in. And our number one thing is that we want to center the victims and the family and decenter ourselves. Um, and when people know that it's not the Brooke and Laura show, um, where we're going to be protagonists, where we're going to be active participants in the story. Um, instead, it's about the people who've had the experiences. And instead, what we try to do is sort of put a mic in front of them. They're already talking. They've been talking. Nobody listens. This is kind of like the key thing for us is that these are people who have been talking, but no one has heard them because their voices haven't been amplified. So when we approach it, our goal is to amplify. Um, and I think that that is one thing that the people that we have had the privilege of working with have liked and have responded well to. And I think that's why we've been able to continue to successfully work with people living in all different kinds of situations. Gotcha. Beautiful. Yeah. Well said. That is a great approach. And that is the way I think a lot of people who want to do this, whether, you know, not a podcast or just look into something as a citizen, something unsolved, maybe a case that happened in their hometown, just something that they're passionate about. I think that they should really take those words to heart and 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 sort of assess everything that goes into not only the victim, but their family, their community, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Um. I I am particularly uh, enamored by uh, Paige Reynolds. That man. <laughs> yes. Was, I I want to know what it was like to be sitting there when you told him. And I know that television has their creative editing and everything, but this seemed like very genuine, uh, a very genuine reaction when you told him about the letter. And he said, "You got the letters." When you told him about that from uh from Ernest Bonds that that you had you had this letter. Yes. What, what, what was it like like did he actually not know like what was it like first telling him because he's such an animated person and it appears that he's putting like a lot of himself into this case. Yes, I I think Paige channels all of us <laughs> because <laughs> nobody can believe what happened in this case. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Like the fact that there is 
a physical letter that says where the, these children are located and two years has gone by and nothing has done. Everyone just, you know, you're, you're just shocked. And so he does that so well. He, um, I feel like we are all him. And my favorite line of his from the show is he didn't know you from a can of paint. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I, I literally wrote down my favorite lines from him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what else you got, Lance? Uh, one of my favorite lines is, well, he says it a couple of times, but to the effect of you get me on the phone with that cat, <laughs> you know, and he'll, he'll tell it like he, he's got lines like that. And then, um, right after that amazing interview that they did with, uh, with April, um, the, uh, the daughter of Ernest Vaughn's, yeah. they, they, this is an incredible interview and she goes out to take a break and, and he, <laughs> such a great line. He said, we can't leave this house until we know. And I was just like, you, <laughs> yeah. you are so badass. His line, yeah. it's funny, I've noticed that some of his lines are kind of um, becoming uh, vernacular on that Facebook page I was talking about of Shantae's. Everybody is talking about piss poor investigations, <laughs> like specifically yeah. piss poor. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> well, that is a great expression. I loved how we dealt with Ernest on the phone. Yeah. He's calling him brother and he's like commiserating with him and he's saying, listen, you know, it was just like a... Uh, he just went right into that, uh, like classic, um, I guess, I guess technique or whatever, like, you know, yeah, it's, it's like what you did at the beginning of this interview, Lance. Oh, maybe I learned a little <laughs> from him. I subconsciously learned a little from him, but like, I, and I love his sense of urgency too. He was, he was always like, okay, nothing's happened for 30 years. We're starting to turn over some rocks. People are starting to talk. This is how it happens on the street, and and when it happens, you have to keep you have to keep going, or else you lose it. And that was sort of like a, a summary of what what his feelings were. He never actually f said that. That wasn't a quote, but I love that attitude. Yeah, yeah. This this case really needs that attitude, and it needs to continue to have that attitude from the public. Well, it it needed you guys too. It needed the two of you to yeah. to bring it out and. I I I was so impressed that you got to sit down with them and not like not like you shouldn't be taken seriously, but it's a very new uh, method in which uh, public information is gathered to solve a case through a true crime podcast and to convince somebody in law enforcement that this is a legit way to do it and then sit down with them and then have a TV show about it put out there so that awareness can be raised like it's it it's a really it's a really cool chain of events that's only going to yeah. result in some sort of uh conclusion here yeah and it it wouldn't be possible without without you guys um and i think that's awesome and uh and we we we've been told similar things um but we don't really uh, take it that that well you know what i mean like we don't really want to hear it to be honest um but it is true that anybody out there listening can make a difference in these cases i mean i really think i think we're all living examples of that we've come from um something that didn't have anything to do with uh what we're doing now what we're talking about right now we got involved and uh moved a case forward so i'm i'm only saying this because i want to appeal to anyone listening who has thought about it themselves because they can do it, and and I think there's a, there's a real difference though in covering like uh, one episode or something like that on on a case, and then doing a deep dive and focusing your entire podcast on a case. For some reason, I don't know what it is, but when there's like an entire podcast on this one case, it just has like a feeling like it's not gonna stop. Do you know what I mean? And so something has to budge in that way. It's almost like the dam has to break. Well, you hope that it's the catalyst for a movement and you hope that that movement can happen on a bunch of levels. And I mean, podcasting has changed so much in the past four or five years, but it absolutely needed that medium of TV to get it to a larger crowd of people. I mean, pl yeah. plenty of people listen to the podcast, but the number of people that my dad actually texted me when the trailer came out, like the morning it came out, and he said that it had been um, played 300,000 times, like in a couple of hours. It's beautiful. You know? So I think that you're right. It's these deep dives, and whether it's on TV, 
whether it's in a podcast, um, whether it's a book, that's the stuff that really gets people moving. Yeah. One thing, though, I think that you can say to people who are interested in helping with cases, be interested in helping with the boring stuff, too. The stuff that yes. doesn't feel exciting, you know, the stuff that wouldn't make a good Reddit thread. Ask people who you're you're interested in the cases of. Ask their family if you can help by handing out flyers. Right. Ask if you can right. go through old newspapers. See what you can do that can push the case forward in a way that may not seem exciting at first, but will have like measurable value. Yeah. yeah that, so that's great. Actually, before um, we were able to get the billboard um, about the reward for the twins, the twins now have a reward of $10,000 raised by listeners of the fall line. Before we were able to um, get a billboard put up, also put up by listeners of the fall line, um, the reward was there. The sheriff chose not to announce it. Um, for, no kidding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's for various point. reasons. So Shantae. <laughs> not very shaft of them. Gets off work. Shantae gets off work. Um, she has children. She has grandchildren. And she is walking around in the rain trying to put up little paper flyers. Um, hang them up on telephone poles. Trying to announce the reward on the street that the, these children went missing. So we were able to go to social media and put out a thing. Is anyone around? Michael Whelan came. Uh, Michael Whelan from Unresolved came to help her hang up um, flyers. Um, You know, things like that are really wonderful for people to do. If you don't happen to have the equipment, but you're interested in helping, there's always a way to help families who are um, trying to find their loved ones. Yeah. Well said. Well said. And yeah, I've been uh, I've been leaning a lot on this whole concept of if you're doing something like this, it's not just a podcast, right? It, it, if you know people are trying to do a true crime podcast and they're they're talking about how they can get downloads and and you know where their where their mid roll sponsor is going to go, and that's where they're uh, that's where they're focused. I'd love how what you're doing is focused on a on a greater on a greater cause. Your the podcast just happens to be how your voice is heard, and you're focused it's on the vessel. On, it's the vessel, <laughs> and you're focused on the why of it all. You're building the community, and you're building the movement. I, I first off, we really appreciate that. That is absolutely a wonderful thing to say. We always feel it's like another tactic. We yeah, we don't we don't deserve these um, compliments. But I just you know I don't want people to feel like they can't make good ethical true crime if they're not like being driven by a mission. Do you know what I mean? There's room for a lot of different kind of stuff. The funny stuff, the chatty stuff, the stuff where you talk about cases, there's room for all of that, you know? And yep. I, I don't want it to seem like there's only one kind of good true crime because I think there's room for everything. But, oh, yeah. you know, if you do want to, like, help a case and you want to create a kind of mission, I think just make sure that you center it on the people who were directly affected by the crime. And that's that's the way to succeed pretty much every time. Yeah. Like that's yeah. great, great advice and uh, and a great point, and uh, and just thank you very much for for all the work that you've done, and thank you for joining us here on the show tonight, uh, taking up an hour of your time on a Thursday night. It's uh, valuable uh, hangout time, so thank you. We really Wait. appreciate it. Do you guys hang out? I, no, I just mean do like. Do you guys think like, we hang out? We're so no. not cool. We're in our mom pajamas. She drove over in her minivan in her mom pajamas, and I'm in mine. I am literally I'm wearing hush puppies. I'm wearing band aid colored <laughs> hush puppies right now. Ladies, like, I, let, listen, I, in no way did I mean hang out outside of your house. <laughs> oh, good. In any, in any cool, cool oh, fashion. I, I just right. meant, like, you know, you could be watching TV right now, but you're talking to us. Oh, that's true. Well, I'm going to Machine Nightclub after this. I, I actually, you know, I actually met Tim before. I met Tim at the True Crime Podcast Festival. We did. By the grace of God, Lance wasn't there. And, uh, and I, re- I really think the, the panel, I, I've been waiting, I've been saving this joke all night, by the way. But uh, uh, I really you set think it up the panel like was better, was better off. 
It was a really fun panel to be on. Um, we were with Sarah Turney, and we were with um, Octavia from Missing Alyssa. Well, hey, thanks for joining us tonight, ladies. It's been a really good... Uh... <laughs> and Patrick Hines from mm-hmm. True Crime oh. Obsessed. It was a oh, real uh, all-star panel, star-studded <laughs> panel. <laughs> Everyone was envious. A- a- anyone who was anyone was there. Except, um, actually, Brooke wasn't there either. Uh, I didn't want to mention it. I just wanted to make it about uh, Lance not not, <laughs> not making it. She ju- she just oh. had a baby. Uh, I think about a week. Well, see, she's got a, a much better excuse than Lance. <laughs> no, I think I think my excuse is better than having a baby. <laughs> oh my god! I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna quickly think of a better excuse. <laughs> seriously we could we could really talk for like two hours i don't want to like give out spoilers for the show but if anyone has not seen the show um it's on oxygen uh if you have the oxygen app you can uh watch it through the oxygen app that's how i watched it and uh it's phenomenal and you guys did such a great job and you got a little ink there too, which I'm curious about. We'll talk about uh, offline, but yeah, uh-huh. if anyone hasn't watched it, you can download the Oxygen app and um, just search through their shows. Yes, thank you so much for having us. It was really fun. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.